following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. All right, now we're in our series in Ephesians this morning. So we're getting towards the end of this book now. We're in chapter 6, working our way through chapter 6. And uh, we come to this passage this morning, uh, which is all on spiritual warfare and, and the devil and the reality of all these things. And I've I got to say, I was sharing with the prayer team just this morning, that whenever I come to talk about these kind of subjects, I feel this kind of heaviness. Uh, and I know, you know, the evil one it just reminded me again this week, he's real and he has a go at me and he, he tries to get in, in, in my own head, in my own mind and disrupt my thoughts. And so just pray for me as we, as we go through this this morning. You know, it's not, these are not easy subjects and realities to talk about. And I find that when we get into talking about the spiritual battle, the reality of the evil one, he doesn't like us talking about that is the, is the truth, right? So, um, this is, you know, I've been reminded, this is, this is real stuff, and it's not stuff we need to be scared of or frightened of, but it's real, and, and um, what we can do is pray. So let's pray for each other, and I just appreciate your prayers as we go through this morning. So, uh, Paula is going to come and read the passage for us this morning from Ephesians 6. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up there, and uh, we're starting at verse 10. Thank you, Paula. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of the devil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Thanks, Paula. So one of uh, Ezra's favorite TV programs at the moment is Scooby-Doo. Any Scooby-Doo fans out there? Yeah. Remember this from your childhood? Scooby-Doo. I mean, it's been around a long time. I remember it from my childhood. And it hasn't changed much, I can tell you, from, from, the, little, from the little glances that I've had at the TV while he's watching it. It's pretty much the same as it was when I was growing up. And uh, every episode of Scooby-Doo pretty much follows the same theme, same basic storyline. You've got some report of some kind of mythical creature. Some monster, some ghost or ghoul is on the loose. And so Scooby-Doo and the team get called in and they do this big investigation and they try to figure out what this creature is and how to capture it. And then every episode pretty much ends the same way. They, after a lot of drama, they capture this monster, this creature, and then the final scene is one of them unmasking this creature. And it always turns out that it's just a person. And it's just Mr. Jones from the amusement park or something like that. And, and there's always that famous last line where he says, I would have got away with it too if it weren't for you pesky kids. And that's the famous line from my childhood. And so what, what you thought was going to be this, this great big ghosty ghoulish thing just ends up being a person, just a, someone trying to do these, these criminal acts. And I wonder if in some ways that is a bit of a picture of how a lot of us think about the devil 
how a lot of us think about Satan. I know for myself, when, when you hear people talk about the devil, I don't know whether you, you do much, but when, you, when I hear people talk, sometimes talk about the devil and they talk about how they're being attacked by the devil and they talk about the devil's up to his old schemes again and the devil made this happen and all the devil made me do this and whatever. And I must admit, I become a bit cynical of all this devil talk. And what I tend to do is go into Scooby-Doo mode. So what I want to do, my natural proclivity is to unmask all of this and all the stuff that's being attributed to the devil. I want to just unmask it and show it's really just people. It's really just a person. This is just someone making dumb decisions or this is just a psychological problem or it's just a natural illness or it's just natural circumstances or it's just a relationship problem or a money problem or whatever it is. I don't tend to give the devil much credence at all. I'm very slow to go to that. I want to look at all of these other factors first. And the sort of devil talk is, is something I, I'm a bit cynical of. And I don't know whether you're like this. I think we can be a bit like this sometimes as Christians because we live in this modern scientific world, right? And we consider ourselves to be educated, enlightened people. And this talk of the devil, it just seems so archaic. It seems so antiquated. It seems like it's the kind of thing that belongs to the dark ages, you know, it belongs to some previous era where people believed in all that stuff. They believed in ghosts and ghouls and goblins and ogres and all of that. That's where the devil belongs. But to talk about the devil in 21st century Western, westernized New Zealand just seems crazy. It just seems like that's completely outdated. And so we don't tend to go there. We tend to look at all these other natural things, natural forces first. And then, you know, maybe if there's no other explanation, we might talk about the devil. And I think that Paul would say to us, just don't be too quick to dismiss the devil. Just be careful. Just don't be too quick to write him off. Don't be too quick to exclude him because the first lie of the devil is always to convince you that he doesn't exist. That's always what he wants to do. He, he's got no interest in the spotlight. He's got no interest in having attention. He'd much rather you thought he didn't exist because then he's got more freedom to do whatever he wants and to influence our lives and influence our world. And you'd have to say, wouldn't you, that if that's his agenda to convince us that he doesn't exist, he's doing a pretty good job. He's, he's sold that lie pretty well, even to Christians, even to the church. I was looking at a survey this last week which showed that now a majority of Christians, majority now, don't believe in the devil. So this is Christians. Now, a majority of Christians do not believe in a personal devil. Some of them wouldn't believe in the devil at all, in any sense. Of those that do, many of them would say, well, the devil is just a name for a kind of presence of evil or an impersonal force of evil or a general name we give to all things bad. Just a general name for kind of the, the bad, the evil, the dysfunction in life. It's just this generic thing, but not a personal being. Not like a living, real, personal being who thinks and acts and, and schemes and so on. And yet, as you look at the Bible, if we take as our starting point the witness of Scripture and you look at passages like this and there's many others in the Bible, you can't avoid this conclusion that the devil is very real. He, he is real. He's as real as you or I. He's as real as God himself. He's as real as the chair you're sitting on. You just can't see him. Because we don't see him in this physical world and we're so used to thinking of this world just as a natural closed world of cause and effect. We're not used to thinking much beyond that, to, to, to seeing through these physical natural things to what might be behind. But Paul's saying to us, the devil is very 
real. And he goes by many names, a lot of different names in Scripture. The devil, Satan, Lucifer, prince of the air, prince of darkness, father of lies, the accuser, the serpent. All of these names, you can read them right through the Bible. It's all talking about the same person. You can call him whatever you want. It's all the same person. And he, he, he is an angelic being, used to be one of the greatest of the angels, but he tried to usurp the authority of God and he was cast out and now he seeks to oppose and attack the plans and purposes of God in the world however he can. So he's not only real, he's very active. He's active in the world and he's seeking to do harm and, and draw people away from God, draw people away from God's purposes, draw people away from God's priorities and draw them towards pretty much anything else. And he's seeking to do as much harm as he can. He's trying to harm individuals. He's trying to harm families. He's trying to harm sometimes our bodies. He's trying to harm churches. He loves that one. Trying to do as much damage as he can to churches. Tries to harm relationships and communities and sabotage the work of God, God's redemptive work, however he can. And this is why Paul tells us in this passage that we need to take our stand against the devil's schemes. That word schemes, some, if you've got older translations of the Bible, it says the devil's wiles. Oh, we don't use that word much anymore, do we? The devil's wiles. And it just means trickery or cunning. His, his, his schemes, his deceitfulness, that he's crafty. And he knows, sometimes I think we, we, we think, you know, the devil, if he exists, we think he's pretty dumb. He, he doesn't really have much of a clue and he doesn't know what he's doing. The reality is he's pretty smart. He's got schemes. He's got plans. He knows our weaknesses, yeah? He knows exactly where you're weak. He knows exactly what those areas are in your life where you're most vulnerable. He knows when you are most vulnerable. He knows how to drive that wedge. Just get the sharp end in there in a relationship or whatever and, and, and crack that open. He knows how to exploit us. He knows how to just how to seduce us. He knows those temptations you're most susceptible to. He knows which of the seven deadly sins you're going to be most tempted by. He just knows how to, how to allure you over to other things and draw you away from things that God wants you to focus on. He knows. He's crafty. He's cunning. And Paul says, we've got to be aware of this, right? We don't want to be naive as Christians and just sort of stand on this, well, I'm an educated, enlightened, modernistic Christian. I don't have any time for this. The more that we take that view, the less aware we are going to be of how the devil is working in the world. He's not someone we need to be afraid of if we belong to Jesus, but Paul says he is someone we've got to be aware of. We've got to be aware that he's real and that he's scheming. And we've got to know how we can engage in the spiritual battle that's going on all around us. So this is what Paul's talking to us about in this passage. This is what we're going to unpack. Who is this devil? What does he do? How does he work? How can we take our stand against him? So first thing Paul does in this passage is he talks to us about the nature of this battle. Have a look in verse 12. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul's saying, when you, when you experience a struggle in life of any kind, whatever that struggle is, health issues, money issues, relationship problems, mental health issues, whatever it is, when you, when you struggle, when you experience struggle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against the visible things, yeah? Our, struggle, our, our ultimate struggle is not against what's right in front of you. Your struggle is not with your kids. You might think it is. Yeah? Your struggle is not with your spouse, even if you think they're 95% wrong and you're 5% wrong. It's not against them. It's not against your parents. It's not against your job. It's not against your boss or your employees. That's not where our real struggle lies. We need to look through those things. Paul is saying there are other forces at work. There are hidden forces at work in all of these circumstances. We need to recognize them. 
So he names these two types of powers that are at work in the world, that are at work around us. Two, two different types of evil, if you like, two forces that are at work. The first one, he says, there are these rulers, these authorities, these powers of this dark world. The powers of the world. Now, you notice what he says. A lot of the time, I think this gets misinterpreted. And we think these are just forces in some other realm way out there. But Paul says, these are powers of the world. So there are these powers. I'm calling them natural powers that are already inherent in the world, already existing in the human experience, already existing around us, already part of the human identity, part of our human makeup. There are these powers that are at work in the world. And that they're natural in the sense that they're already in the world, and yet they are powerful. They are forces that can get a hold on our lives. So you can think of things in this category like temptation, the power of temptation, the power of greed, the power of lust, the power of anger, the power of pride. You pick any of the seven deadly sins you want. The power of envy. These are, these are forces. These are powers in our life. Think of social powers, the power of peer influence. Right? I mean, you, you've seen this. You know this. Think about the power of a mob mentality. How is it that people can act one way in a group they would never act as an individual? There's a power. There's a social power that kicks in. This is the kind of thing Paul's talking about. He says there's these powers in the world, and they're tricky to pin down. And, they, and they, we don't see them that clearly, and they seem kind of ambiguous, but there is real power there. I was dealing with a guy a couple of years ago who, years ago, who was an alcoholic. And he'd had a really awful family background. His upbringing had been a mess. And he had now a difficult marriage, difficult relationship with his son. And he'd struggled with alcoholism for a long, long time. And he'd had some times in his life where he'd done really well. And he'd stayed off the drink for, I think, sometimes years. But then he'd have these relapses. And he'd go right back into it. And he would just make stupid decisions. Just do dumb stuff. Really destructive behaviors. And you just think, why, why are you doing this? You've got a family. You're just making a mess of things. But you could see the way that this addiction had a power over his life. Addiction is a tremendous power. It's not just the drink, right? That would be looking at it just in terms of the flesh and blood stuff. It's not just the bottle. It's the power of addiction. Those of you that have experienced addiction, you know what I'm talking about. In any area of life, addiction is one of the, the strongest powers that we experience in our world. It's like the more that you fight, the more powerless you feel. Yeah, The more that you rage against it, the more powerless you feel. This guy wanted to stop. He wanted to be sober with everything in him. And yet it was like this thing just had a power over him. It just had its claws into his life and he didn't feel like he could get away from it. The more he struggled, the stronger the grip got on him. This is the kind of thing Paul's talking about by the powers of this world. Now you can break that down and you can talk about biochemical things happening in our brain. You can look at the pathology of his life. You can look at family relationships and so on. And, and these all have natural explanations. But the point is these things sometimes seem to take on a life of their own. And they seem to become more powerful than our ability to resist them. The powers of the world. So you have these natural powers here. And then alongside those natural powers, Paul says there are also the second type of power. And he says against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So in the second category, this is where we need to just put on a different pair of glasses for a minute and just understand that reality is not all that we see. That alongside the physical world that we exist in right now, there is a spiritual world. There is a spiritual realm. 
And it's not out there somewhere in a far-off place. It's right here. It's all around us. We just can't see it. But the spiritual world exists. It's just as real as the physical world. And it's teeming with life, just like the physical world is. So you're sitting here this morning in a gym, and you see what you see, and you feel what you feel, and this is our natural experience. But all around us right now is the spiritual realm. All around us right now. And, and there are these beings within the spiritual realm. The Bible talks about angelic beings of God and demonic powers belonging to the devil. And these powers are just as real as you or I. We just don't see them. And we, we, we often have no idea the battles that are going on in the spiritual realm. And we have no idea sometimes, but we know it's true the way these battles that are going on, this conflict that is going on, affects things that are happening in the physical realm. And that sometimes what is going on and just looks like it's purely physical and it looks like it's purely natural can be influenced by these spiritual forces, these powers, these authorities, these demonic forces of evil. So when I think about this guy that I was talking to, this alcoholic, you can look at all those natural forces going on. You can look at psychology, you can look at relationship, you can look at socioeconomic factors. But I could see as you, as you talk to this guy, you also recognize there's more going on here than just the natural. There's more at work here than just purely physical forces. There are also these powers. There are also these spiritual powers that are at work here somehow. And I don't know how. I don't understand how it works. But somehow there are these spiritual forces that are pressing on his life and are pushing some buttons in his, in his head and in his heart and influencing him and seeking to, to take life away and rob him of, of his family, rob him of his marriage, rob him of his relationship with his son, rob him of his own dignity and, and destroy the image of God within him. Those are very real powers. And this is what Paul talks about by these spiritual powers that exist in the heavenly realm. So you have these natural powers, the powers of the world, and you have these spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. And then behind both of these types of powers stands the evil one, the enemy. And ultimately, he's the author of it all. Ultimately, behind all of the brokenness in this world, behind all sin and evil, behind every trace of dysfunction in our lives and in our world, ultimately is Satan. And it all eventually, maybe not directly, but eventually, it all finds its source in him, just like it did right back in the garden. Yeah, and the very first temptation came from the serpent. He was the author of it all, and ever since then, he is the ultimate source of all the brokenness, all the evil, all the sin in the world. Now, that doesn't mean that he always works directly in people's lives. Okay, that doesn't mean that he's, it's always directly and, and just purely the devil. Sometimes it is, right? Like you think about Jesus and the temptation that he experienced in the wilderness. That was the devil. That was literally Satan showed up in the wilderness and tempted Jesus face to face right there. But often, most of the time, that's not the way he works. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. Often, most of the time, the way the devil works is indirectly through all of these other means. So he works through all of these natural forces. He works through the psyche of our own minds. He works through the brokenness of our own relationships. 
He works through the messiness of our own family backgrounds. He works through our situations. And he works through all of these spiritual powers of darkness in the heavenly realms as well. And these are the tools that he uses and the levers that he pulls and the buttons that he presses to cause chaos and cause as much havoc as he can and disrupt our lives. So it's not like you have a devil sitting on your shoulder whispering in your ear. You know, it's not like that old caricature. It's not like if you struggle as an alcoholic, you can just say, well, the devil made me do it. You know, the devil made me have that drink. I got no responsibility. Yes, ultimately, everything is traced back to him. Yes, he's involved. Yes, he's the author of it all. But he uses many and varied ways to influence and disrupt our lives. And as Christians, what this should do, I think, is give us a holistic picture of our struggles and lead us to a holistic way of engaging with this. Because I think there's a couple of extremes you can go to here, right? One is that you can over-spiritualize everything. And you know, who, you know people that do this, right? It's a devil around every corner. It's everything's a demon to be cast out. You struggle with lust, you've got to cast the demon out. You know, you struggle with alcohol, that's a demon. You've got to just place hands, lay hands on someone, whatever, and just cast that demon out as if everything is just directly and purely the work of Satan and demons. You know, let me tell you, if you struggle with lust, that is not a demon to cast out. That is something you're probably going to struggle with for the rest of your life. You know, James says we, we're, we're tempted when by our own evil desires we're dragged away and enticed. Yeah, it's, it's not always this external force that's coming to bear on you. So we can over-spiritualize things, but I think at the same time, and maybe this is our greater temptation in the modern Western world, we can also under-spiritualize things. And we can look only at the natural forces. And we can look only at psychology and relationships and economics and family background and all of these things. And we can ignore the bigger picture. We can ignore the battle. We can ignore the spiritual forces of darkness. And we can ignore the enemy. And the beauty of having a holistic approach is that we engage in the battle on every front. So we want to be looking at all of these factors, including the spiritual forces that are at work, because what happens when you recognize those spiritual forces that are at work is you are driven to pray. You're not just driven to use the natural tools in your natural toolkit. You are driven to pray because you realize the battle is much bigger than you. And you recognize that the real power is one that's going to have to come from heaven if we're going to make any progress in this fight. When you get a holistic picture of the struggle, you get a holistic picture of how we can engage and how we can battle in the fight. So how do we do this? How do we step into this kind of battle? And how do we avoid the over-spiritualizing and the under-spiritualizing? What's the role that we are supposed to play in the middle of this? This is, this is where Paul takes us in this passage. Before we, before we just jump into some specifics on that, though, the most fundamental thing here, and Paul doesn't say it directly in this passage, but he does in other places, the most fundamental thing to recognize in all of this is that the devil is a defeated enemy. Okay? If you don't hear anything else today, just hear that. Right? Wake up, listen to that, go back to sleep. The devil is a defeated enemy. That's it. Yeah, because you, it's easy when, when we start talking like this to get really worried and we can get spooked and we can feel like, oh, the devil, this formidable creature, you know, how am I ever going to take a stand against him? The reality is when you look at the cross of Christ, the devil was defeated there. That on the cross, Jesus won a decisive victory over Satan. So yes, the devil is very real. Don't, don't underestimate that. 
But on the cross, he was defeated. Jesus robbed him of his power. Jesus robbed him of his territory, robbed him of his dominion, robbed him of his ultimate authority. So he no longer holds the world in slavery. He used to. Hebrews tells us he used to hold the world in slavery to death, but no longer. Jesus stole the keys to death and Hades, and he holds them now. He's the one who's got all authority over heaven and earth. So the devil is a real enemy, but he's a defeated enemy. And one day he's going to be a destroyed enemy. One day he will be fully and finally done away with and Revelation pictures it as he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. He'll be completely vanquished and he will be no more. There'll be a world without Satan one day. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? One day there will be a world without the devil at all, without any of his schemes. That day is coming, but that day is not yet. So we live in this present age where the devil is defeated, but he's not yet destroyed. But we need to recognize the victory is already won. So we don't fight this battle for victory. We fight from victory. Yeah? We don't fight towards victory. It's not like there are these two equal and opposing forces. This is not like Star Wars. Okay? This is not like you've got the good side, you've got the resistance, you've got the Jedi, and then you've got the dark side. You've got the empire. And, and, and it's, there's always this uncertainty as to how the battle is going to go, and they seem like equal powers. It's not like that, okay? You've got to get Star Wars out of your head when you think about how things truly are in, in the real world that God has created. In this world, God has already been victorious. In this world, the victory is won, the battle is, is fierce, but ultimately the war is won. Yeah, and so God is far, far greater and stronger, and Christ has far more authority than anything or anyone that can come against you. So you don't need to fear. You don't need to worry. You don't need to be anxious about this whole battle. We're already on the winning side. Christ is the victor and we fight from a place of victory. In fact, we're not even so much fighting a battle as we are outworking a victory. Outworking the victory of Christ in the world. That should give us a little bit of confidence as we step into this. So we talk about the devil and spiritual warfare. It's not something we need to fear or be intimidated by. We have Jesus. We cling to him. He is the king, the champion, and he is the victorious one. That's all we need. Now, we have a role to play here, though, and this is what Paul describes in this next passage. He says in verse 13, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. So you can imagine Paul here in his prison cell in Rome, and he was probably literally chained to a Roman guard. So he's looking at this Roman soldier, And probably that soldier didn't have all of his military regalia on, but Paul looks at this guy and starts thinking, hmm, there's a bit of a metaphor there. You think about that Roman legion of soldiers and all that military gear they had, all of the armor they put on. That's kind of like the armor that we need to put on as Christians. It's kind of a a metaphor for the way in which we need to be clothed with these, these pieces of armor that represent how we can be protected in the fight. And so a metaphor developed in Paul's thought. But it's easy when you look at all of this armor. There's six pieces here, six pieces of armor. It's easy to feel like these are all things that we need to do. That these are things, all these things we've got to obey. We've got to be righteous. We've got to be truthful and faithful. And we've got to preach the gospel and all of these things. And we can feel like this is just a long list of things we've got to do so we can go out there and fight the devil ourselves. But the whole point of the spiritual armor 
is that this is not your armor at all. This is the armor of God, right? That's what it's called. That's quite important. This is not the armor of the Christian. This is the armor of God. It is his armor that he puts on you. In fact, you know where else all these pieces of armor are mentioned? In the Bible. All the way back in the book of Isaiah. Almost all of them, in fact, I think all of them, are mentioned in the book of Isaiah. They come out of the, the prophets. And when you look in Isaiah and you see the same language, you, you, you can see the reference to the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the gospel and the belt and all of these things. They're all there. But do you know what they are in the book of Isaiah? They are references to God. This is who God is. It's not stuff God tells people to do. It is descriptions of who God himself is. In Isaiah, God wears the helmet of salvation. In Isaiah, God wears the breastplate of righteousness. In Isaiah, it's the Messiah himself who is God who wears this belt. It's called the belt of righteousness in Isaiah, but here it's the belt of truth, but it's this belt that is placed around him. In Isaiah, it's the Messiah who, who comes bringing the gospel. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring the gospel. In, in, in Isaiah, it's God who has the sword. God is the mighty warrior who fights for us. It's not your armor, it's his. That's where we've got to start and that's where we've got to end with the spiritual armor of God. Please don't see this as a legalistic thing. There's six things you've got to do to be a better Christian and fight the spiritual battle. I think half the problem is that we try and fight on our own. Half the problem is that we try and summon this kind of Christian bravado and go out there and try and do battle with the devil. Listen, the devil's a lot more powerful than you, but he's a lot less powerful than Jesus. That's the point. So God says to you, this is not your armor, it's mine. Let me put this armor on you. Putting on the spiritual armor is just God saying to us, I want you to be clothed with my salvation. I don't want you to go out there and do 10 new things. I want you to be clothed in my righteousness. I want you to cling to what is already true, that you're my child and you are accepted and loved. You're safe and secure in my arms. And yes, the devil will come and agitate. And yes, he can do some damage, but he's, a, he's like a wounded animal crawling off to die. You don't need to worry about him. You cling to me. And there is safety and there is refuge. You let me be your protector. You let me be your defender. You let me be your fortress. You let me be your strong tower. This is what God is saying to you. I just want you to be clothed with my righteousness and my salvation and my truth and my gospel. That's how we're going to be protected in the battle. That's how we're going to be steady in the fight is to be immersed in the reality of who God is and what he has done for us and who we are in him. That's what it's all about. Because when you look at the primary role we have in this passage, it is not to fight. You look down this paragraph, is there a single reference to us fighting? Are we ever called to fight? The command is not for us to fight, it's what? To stand. The primary command that we have is stand firm. You stand your ground, you hold the ground. But you don't need to go and fight this battle. Who does the fighting? God. God, your Father, is fighting for you. Reminds me of the words that God said to Moses just before he parted the Red Sea. And the Israelites are looking at this massive body of water on one side and the Egyptian army on the other side. Situation of total hopelessness. And God says to Moses, the Lord will fight for you this day. You only need to be still. 
And I think he's been saying that to us ever since. Sometimes we just don't listen. And God is saying that to you right now. The Lord is fighting for you this day. You just be still. Stop worrying. Stop getting all antsy about this. Stop feeling like you've got to summon some courage that's not really there. Stop feeling like you've got to go out and do battle yourself. The Lord is fighting for you. So let him. Let him fight these battles. Some of you are fighting real battles at the moment. Some of you are in the midst. I know. I know some of the stories. Some of you are in the midst of real struggle. And you really feel like there are forces pressing down upon you, pressing down upon your family. And I think the Lord would say to you today, I want to fight your battles for you. I want you to hand the battle over to me. Of course you can't do this. Of course this is bigger than you. Of course this is bigger than your ability to endure and to resist. But all the grace and the peace and the strength you need is in me, God is saying to you. So he's saying to you, let me fight your battle. You hand it over to him. You hand the struggle, hand the battle over to him. Let him fight it for you and say, God, it's bigger than my ability to resist. This is bigger than anything I can do. I give it to you. It needs to be your power and not mine. It needs to be your strength and not mine. It needs to be your victory and not my victory. All I have, all I can do is cling to you. All I can do is put on your armor which is to put on your grace and your righteousness and your salvation. And I ask God that you would fight this battle for me. I think God's prompting some of you to hand your battles over to him this morning. Stop trying to fight yourself, but let him fight for you. And then you stand firm. That is our command, yeah? That is what we're called to do is stand firm. Stand your ground. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in the word of God. Stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit. Stand firm in the community of Christian brothers and sisters around you. Stand firm in the truth and what you know to be true from the Word of God. You stand firm. And even that you do by God's strength. Even that you do by God's grace. But he says to you, you stand firm, but you let me go before you. I'm the mighty warrior who saves. God is mighty to save. Let him fight your battles for you. Many of you will have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. You remember that first scene? that awful scene, the Battle of Normandy and that huge invasion on the coast of France uh, came to be called D-Day, yeah, 1944. And it was just this huge invasion of Allied troops. Tens of thousands of soldiers lost their lives that day. But by the end of the day, by the end of the fighting, the Allied troops had a stronghold. They had a foothold on the beach. And from there, from that stronghold, they were able to continue advancing into, into France, into, into Europe, and eventually push back the German forces. It was a significant moment. Historians look back and see that, that was the turning point in the war. Now, it was another full year before the Germans sur surrendered. It was, it was not until 1945 the German troops finally surrendered, and then that day became known as V-Day, Victory Day. But as you look back, you can see what happened on D-Day was absolutely decisive for winning that war. And even though there was a huge amount of bloodshed after that, still in that final year, a lot of people lost their lives. There's a lot of fighting. But because D-Day had happened, because D-Day had been won, V-Day was assured. It was only a matter of time before V-Day happened. Now as Christians, we can look back and we look at the cross, that was our D-Day. 
You look at the cross of Jesus, that was the day he defeated Satan. That was the day the victory was won. There was a decisive victory that day. And we can look forward and we see V-Day. And we see that one day there's going to be a final victory. And, and Jesus will claim that victory that he won over the devil on the cross. But we're living in between, right? We're living in between D-Day and V-Day. And so in the present, the fighting is still pretty fierce. And some of you are experiencing this in your lives now. The battle is pretty intense. It, it still feels like Satan's got a lot of power. It doesn't feel like the victory's been won. It just feels like things are hard and getting harder because we live in between those two times. But here is the reality. Because there has been a D-Day, there will be a V-Day. Because there has been a defeat of Satan on the cross, there will be a final victory. It's absolutely assured. And it's only a matter of time until Christ returns. That's the assurance that you have that even though in the present things may be brutally, brutally hard for you, you can know that Satan does not have the final word. Yes, he prowls around now like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, but he doesn't have the final word. His time is limited. His days are numbered. One day he's going to be fully and finally vanquished. You can know that even though the struggle and the suffering and the temptation is just so, so difficult in the present, that sin and suffering and struggling and ill health and mental health, all of these things, they do not have the final word. They don't have the last say. They don't get the last laugh. Eventually, God wins. Eventually, the kingdom of God will be here in all of its fullness, all of its glory, all of its power, and there will be no more tears, no crying, no mourning, no pain, because the old order of things will have been done away with, and God's peace, His shalom, will cover the earth. That's the promise we have. But for now, let's stand firm. Let's allow God to put on that spiritual armor. Let's think about each of those pieces of armor and imagine God putting them on us for the fight that we're in. Let's commit ourselves to standing firm as his people, standing firm in the, in the fights that you face in your families, in your marriages, in your own mind and heart. Let's take our stand against the evil one. Let's never be naive to his schemes. Let's never convince ourselves that somehow he doesn't exist or that he's unimportant or uninvolved. Let's be realistic about the spiritual battle that's going on all around us. But most of all, let's let God fight for us. Let's let him fight the battles in our lives. Let's let him push back the darkness and fight on our behalf. He is strong, he is willing, and he is able. He will fight for you. All you need to do is stand firm and be still and rest in his everlasting arms of love. Let me pray for you. Father, I know there's many battles that are being fought now. And even as I say these words this morning, I'm so aware, Lord, of the, of the struggles that are here in this room and represented in families. Lord, I know the heartache. I know the broken hearts, the battles that are being fought, many of them hidden and private. But Lord, the battle is real and we face it and we feel it. God, we thank you that even in the midst of this victory, you have the authority, you have the victory, and you have all the power that we need. 
We thank you, God, that even when our hearts are overwhelmed, you lead us to yourself and you gather us in and you give us strength to take another step and then another step and then another step. God, we we just want to draw even now, and I'm thinking of those, God, that just feel overwhelmed now by the battles they're fighting. We just want to ask, Lord Jesus, that you would pour out your strength, that you would clothe us in your spiritual armor. Father, give each one here the strength they need for this fight, Lord. Lord, there's some here that just need your peace right now. There's some here, Lord, that just need that sense of, of stillness in their heart, Lord. God, there's some here that just need a sense of hope in their lives. I pray you would give them that. There's some here that need the power of your spirit to be able to deal with what's in front of them. There's things that are just coming up for them that are overwhelming. I pray, Lord, that you would pour your strength into their life. Lord, some just need to know that you are there. Lord, there's some here this morning who are feeling utterly abandoned by you, who can't sense you, can't feel you, almost given up on the fact that you're there at all. Lord Jesus, I pray in some way, would you reveal your presence? Lord Jesus, would you give them a sign of your presence, a sign that you are right there with them, that you've never left them, and you won't fail them. God, we just receive from you the power we need for this battle that we're in, and we thank you the victory is yours. We thank you the power is yours. We thank you that all authority is yours. So we step forward in your name and in your power and in your strength. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.